0: Turn to Romans 8. Thank you, Victoria. Lots of good prayer in there. Romans 8.14 reminds me of Ephesians 5.14, which is a citation of Isaiah 60 and verse 1. Awake, you sleepers, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Messiah will shine on you. This light of Messiah is the light in which we've been reading Romans. We're coming down to the home stretch in teaching this epistle. And the long title of which is reading Romans with the light on. Next we'll be going to, I think, Galatians. And I have a special long title for that epistle that will be shocking. I'm not going to announce it until we're ready to kick that study off. Galatians, the letter. And a longer title. In fact, both Galatians and Romans deal thematically with the motif of what Israel is. What is Israel? What is Israel truly? For as Romans 9 6 says, not all Israel is Israel. Paul explains what he means by that and of course all israel will be saved in romans 11:26 that's something we don't argue with but the identity of israel not only is the theme of romans 9 through 11 but it's also the theme of romans chapter 8 emphatically israel as a people as paul shows very forcefully in galatians very adeptly in romans they are not a people who fulfill Obedience to the law of Moses, but a people joined to God in Jesus Christ by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that distinguishes eschatological Israel from a people who are controlled by the flesh. That which identifies Israel is a people directed by the Holy Spirit in the midst of whom is the spirit of God he's called he's also called the spirit of the son of God he's also called the spirit of adoption that'll be one of the prime themes today the spirit of life in Christ Jesus he is the spirit of grace in Hebrews 10 29 the spirit of truth in John fourteen twenty six sixteen thirteen. 13 he leads us into all truth. The truth that he leads us into is the truth that is embodied, personified, manifested in Jesus. Ephesians 4.21. In Romans 8.14-16, through 16, the point I'm trying to make is that if this phrase, the sons of God, which in the Greek text, is simply huioi. That's the word. Make that hard breathing. Huioi, theu, sons of God. Huioi, theu. sons of God. This comes from Hosea chapter 2 and verse 1 in the Septuagint translation, the English Translation usually has it in 110, not to be confused. But remember that both Romans 1-2 and Romans 16-26, the whole epistle of Romans is bracketed by what is called the writings of the prophets. For ages, the writings of the prophets housed a mystery truth that is only now revealed in the Christ event, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his exaltation at the right hand of the Father. This mystery reveals a universal or cosmic horizon. The whole reason for Romans is Paul to preach the gospel to the people in Rome and to preach the gospel to people in our own time. Christians generally have a very rudimentary, very elementary, very superficial understanding of the gospel. They don't know the depth of it. We don't know the depth of it the breadth of it, the width of it, the length of the power of it. We don't know the scale and the range of its effect, which will cover all of humanity in all of its times, all of creation in all of its epochs and times summed up in Christ Jesus. So when Paul said he wants to come to Rome to preach the gospel, it's not that they haven't heard the gospel. It's not even that they haven't yet believed they have. But he wants to fill them in on the cosmic scale of it, the bigness of it, the phenomenal momentous significance of the range of the gospel. And this will bring a kind of a humility there that is a little bit lacking, and it will bring a unity there that is quite lacking. And I think it has the same effect in the church today. In Romans eight fourteen to 16, the point I'm trying to make then is if the sons of God, as it's found in eight fourteen, is an allusion to Hosea 2, one of the prophets, one of the writings of the prophets, where the word sons of God is used to describe Israel. And I think Paul is saying this, that it refers to what I call eschatological Israel, Israel in its final redeemed and glorious form the sons of God. Now, the whole of Romans, Romans in its entirety, is about what is now apocalyptically revealed in the writings of the prophets. And again, Romans 1, 2, Romans 16, 25, and 26. Hosea is certainly one of those. In fact, he's one of the key prophets that Paul appeals to, as we've already seen in two twenty three, of Hosea. Found in Romans 9, and 26, he says, In the same place where I say to you, you are not my people, I will say to you, you are the sons of the living God. On the cross, as Christ received the consequences of the rejection of Israel, they were called not my people. But in the same place, God called them the sons of the living God cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I determined to know nothing, Paul said, except that as the key of interpretation of all the scriptures. The scriptures have to be seen and interpreted in the light of the crucified and risen and glorified Messiah. And that's what the mystery is, the revelation of the mystery. The mystery is ultimately that God intended from the eternity before time to salvifically or savingly sum up everything in his son. That becomes really the key verse, the foundation verse for all of Paul's writings. And it's found in Ephesians 1.10, the summarization of all things in Christ. The whole of Romans then is about what is now apocalyptically revealed in the writings of the prophets, of which Hosea is one about jesus christ the son of god the son of god is the primary revelation of him as the scripture teaches in romans 1 2 he is not only the son of david according to physical descent descending from the line of judah the royal line the messianic line but he is also demonstrated dramatically by the power of god to be god's divine son Eternally begotten within the triune God, existing in the same substance of the Father, having no beginning. His begetting is not a beginning, but an eternal procession within the Trinity. He is the Son of God by nature. We are the sons of God by adoption. He is the Son of God by an eternal begetting inside the Trinity, an eternal internal procession from the father we are sons of God by divine pronouncement and decree and by a birth that God effects by his own will not ours we are born to be children of God not only sons but technon born ones children he uses both these terms and he seems to use them interchangeably Children, sons. Does the same thing in Galatians 3.26. You are all the sons of God. Again, alluding to Hosea, they will be called, Israel will be called the sons of the living God. You are all, you are all sons of God through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. Says Galatians 3.26. And there is no Jew or Greek there is no male or female there is no slave nor free and those are just examples of all of the contrasts that we have whether they're social racial ethnic or gender contrasts Israel is all of humanity in union with Christ as we will see and so even if Paul did not intend to allude specifically to Hosea one. He certainly had it in his heart and mind, and he would certainly agree that this term "huiōi theu, "huiōi theu, sons of God, which includes both genders, because there is neither male nor female, we will be explaining this in Galatians in 328, a very shocking statement that Paul makes, and it means more than we think it means, as we'll see. But Paul would certainly agree that this phrase "huiōi theu is the prophetic designation of of the eschatologically restored Israel. It's a name for Israel. Sons of God equals the Israel of God. Paul only used that phrase, and that phrase, in fact, only appears once in all the scriptures. And it's in Galatians 6.16. It's at the height of Paul's audacity as a prophet-apostle, an apostle-prophet, when he talks about this Israel of God. Consisting of people joined to Christ through the cross of Christ, not through circumcision or adherence to the law, physical descent from Abraham through Isaac, or any other means, but only the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So once again, Hosea is explicit in the very next verse of Hosea 2, which Paul alludes to here, I'm sure. He prophesies, quote, the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. And that's the future passive indicative of the verb sunago, where we get that word synagogue. They will be gathered together, sunago, and they shall appoint for themselves one ruler. And that word ruler is also significant. I might as well write some Greek words up here today because that's how I read the scriptures in the Greek. It's the only thing that makes sense to me is to read them in the Greek where they're written in the Greek. And that is the word "arche." RK. that word under one ruler, one ruler is R-K. And... That's a name for Jesus Christ in Colossians chapter one and verse eighteen. The image of God, a Jesus Christ, is also the arche. And so, when we get to Genesis one one, we're not talking only about the beginning, but we're talking about the end in the beginning. In the beginning, which is n arke, e n. Arke. That's how Genesis begins in the Septuagint translation. In Christ, God creates the heavens and the earth. That's not just his beginning game. That's the end game. God's end game is to create a new creation in Christ under one ruler, under one ruler. Another word for ruler, kephale, head. Christ, the head of the body, kefale. And kefale happens to be, let's just play a couple of word games first. I promise I'll get started, but I always do this in my mind, in my head, which I know. It makes me weird. But the word ana, kefale, the word kefale is right in the center of it, but it it turns into a verb. Kefale, uh uh-oh. Uh oh. Anna o. That's a omicron. That's an omega o. Ephesians one ten. Gathering up under one head, all things. Ta. Panta, the article before all means the all things, with nothing in- excluded, all of created reality. Summed up under one head, Jesus Christ is the mystery, the mystery of God's will, which he determines has nothing to do with your will at all. I hate to tell you that has nothing to do with your will at all. It has to do with the mystery of God's will to sum up everything under one head, Christ. And when that happens, Christ In whom all things are summed up, submits himself to the Father so that God will be all in all. That's all in all, all through times, all through all of time. That's the gospel. That's not the elementary superficial range of the gospel. Saving me if I repent and believe or surrender or do a hundred other things that men require in the doctrines of men. God wills it. God does it. It is by God's own will that you have been born As a new creation, as the first fruits of a new creation, by God's will. It is not by the will of man, nor by the will of the flesh, but by the will of God that we have been born as children of God. He has effected that birth. It is God's will. His will is to sum up everything in Christ, and in Isaiah 46.10, he says emphatically, I will do all my will, and it's not my will that any should perish, and it is my will that all should be saved. Do you realize how much of an argument is going on against God inside the church about what he said? Do you realize how many of the so-called church people are arguing with that? And they call themselves the church people. They they actually have the audacity to call themselves the church. Hmm. Hosea is explicit. He says all of Judah, all the sons of Judah, all the sons of Israel will appoint themselves one ruler. Colossians 1.18 speaks of him as Christ. So this is no doubt an eschatological reference to the mystery of God's intention. God's intention, in case you wanted to know that it's not just his desire or his wish he uses other words in 111 like resolution and determination, meaning unstoppable determination. It's his unstoppable determination to sum up savingly, reconcilingly all things in Christ. He's already done it at the cross. It simply has to be manifested in history at the coming of Christ called Parousia, which is also called the apocalypsis. When every eye sees him, even those who pierced him. When every eye sees him, every knee will bend before him. Not forcefully, coercively, willingly as an act of worship and praise and allegiance to him. And every tongue will pledge allegiance to him. That's what Philippians 2.10 and 11 Romans 14 11 connected to Isaiah 45 23 means as it also connects to Revelation 1 7 which is a conflation and you already knew this of Daniel 7 13 and 14 and Zechariah 12 10 for it seems that all the prophets without exception from time immemorial in the very beginning have spoken about one theme and it's called apokatastasis pantone the restoration of all things, all the prophets. When we argue with God's will to do this, we're arguing with all the spokesmen of God from the beginning of time until now and through the whole Old and New Testaments. We're calling God a failure if we argue with it. So Paul says, I want to come to Rome to speak to preach the gospel the very fact that they have divisions factions arguments debates exclusion of one another from fellowship is rooted in the fact that they have not heard this gospel in its full horizon and range and impact that's the problem with the church today that's the problem today The sons of God aren't everything. No. But they are historical first fruits of a universal ingathering under one head. God has made Christ to be head over all things. And for now, that means the church. If you're going to define the church, the church is a people who have been awakened. And Christ shines on them. They have had faith elicited in them by God. It wasn't a decision they made on their own. And that faith perceives the love of God in its height, its depth, its breadth, and its width. That faith is the means by which Christ dwells in our hearts. They are called the sons of God. They're the historical first fruits. James puts it splendidly, and there's no place where it's put better. In James 1.18, by the will of God, he has caused you to be born again. To become a kind of first fruits of his creation. Means the first fruits of a universal harvest of creation. Do you think Paul's kidding and do you think the scriptures are kidding when the very last verses of Deutero-Isaiah which is Isaiah 40 through 55. The last verses in 55 talk about trees clapping their hands, mountains singing, all of creation rejoicing at the universal restoration of humanity. Do you think that the last verse in the Psalms, Psalm 150 in verse 6 where it says, let everything that has breath praise God. Do you think they're kidding? Do you think that that's not? That's only some things that have breath. Or just the people, the few people left when he comes to the earth. You think Paul's kidding when he says creation waits in anticipation for the apocalypse of the sons of God? That means for the historical manifestation of who the sons of God are really are in glory. You think Revelation 5.13 is kidding when John says, I heard the voice of all creation. Pontos, ketesis, all of creation, praising him. The range, the scope, the horizon of the redemption effected by the unspeakably horrific death an unspeakably glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ has yet to be told. So we we will see first fruits again. We saw it in Romans 11:16 on Wednesday. We see it here, we see it again in Romans 8:23 in reference to the spirit, and that's what we're talking about here, the spirit and sonship. And with reference to the people of God, we are said to have the first fruits of the Spirit. That means God promised to pour out his Spirit on all flesh. The result of that outpouring is salvific, saving. Because sons and daughters prophesy, old old men have dreams, and all the rest of these wonderful manifestations aren't because God damned you. The pouring out of the Spirit is salvific. This pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh has already happened within history on some people who have the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits of the Spirit is the indication of a universal outpouring. Titus said it this way When the philanthropy of our great God and savior appeared. He saved you. Not according to righteous deeds that you have done, but according to his mercy, he saved you by the washing of regeneration and by the outpouring of the spirit, the generous outpouring of the spirit, which is the first outpouring of what will be a universal outpouring. Every movement in history forgets some people. Every political movement, every ideological movement, every national movement, whether it's called the New Deal or the Green New Deal, it'll leave somebody behind. God's movement in history leaves no one behind. God doesn't leave one race behind, one national entity behind, and with the, the handicap behind. He does not leave the children behind, the aged behind. He doesn't leave the dying behind. He doesn't even leave the dead out of his program. They may be the greatest beneficiaries of all, resurrected to life. The gospel is the movement of God unto salvation for all. You say it says all who believe. Yeah, not exclusively of those who believe. But those who believe are now the first fruits. We'll see it again in 8.23, not today. And it's in the context of the intense expectation of the whole of creation. It's also in connection with a thing called the adoption. The adoption, I'll just do one more Greek word today. That's another word. Huio is used again for son. Huio and then T H E S I A. Huio Thacia thesia. Adoption. Placement as sons. Pronouncement as sons. The Father pronounces us to be sons. The Spirit of the Son is sent into our hearts, crying, shouting, Abba. The most fundamental sounds, vocal sounds, the most fundamental letters of the alphabet, alpha and beta, A and B. Abba. The first fundamental sounds of an infant at birth are after mama, dada, papa, nana, Aramaic, Abba. You'd think that the sign that we are children of God would be something spectacular. Some people say it's glossolalia speaking in tongues, prophesying, doing miracles, laying hands on people and suddenly they're healed. That that's a sign that we are the sons of God. But you know the sign that we are the sons of God, the children of God, men and women alike, is a very unspectacular sign. It's our ability to call God Father, Abba. And to shout it with all of our hearts that that's who He is. Every time I pray, I pray, Father, and I realize, don't just take that for granted. You're you are being caused by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Son in you, to call the God of the universe. And as Deuteronomy ten seventeen puts it, and Peter alludes to it in First Peter one seventeen. If you call the one who judges impartially all human beings according to their works, if you call that God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, by the name Father, then you ought to conduct yourselves with reverence in your temporary exile here on the earth. He says, Father, in First 1 Peter 1.17, Paul says, Abba. Abba, ho Pater, Abba. The most common language, the common view of that or the common expression of that in our language is dad or daddy. And we live in a time in which people have to report over and over again the failure of their earthly fathers. The psalmist said, though my parents even forsake You will not. And so the greatest meaning, the greatest unsurpassable sign that we are the sons of God is that we have the ability and privilege to call the God of the universe Abba in the most familial, domestic, family terms. Familiar term. Intimate term. And we'll see this again. So remember in Romans 8, 2 to 13, we have 12 references to the flesh, which is identified as an adverse power, an enemy. And we have 12 references to the spirit, meaning the spirit of God, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of life, the spirit of grace, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the son of God. 12 times 12 or 12 versus 12 shows Israel dominated by the flesh is not Israel. Israel dominated by the spirit and in whom the spirit indwells, that's Israel. And it doesn't matter Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, high born, low born, first class, second class, middle class, lower class, all the classes. Socialists might even like that. That there's no class distinctions in Christ. Even they got to like it. But the way socialism has done it in history is to. Not only leave people behind, but kill a few tens of millions of people that don't fit into the program. That's not God's way. Now. All of a sudden, after Romans 8, 13, when the 12 tribes of Israel under the flesh are distinguished from the 12 tribes of Israel under the spirit, so that true Israel is shown to be the presence of the spirit and directed by the spirit, he then goes, it's only spirit after that. The spirit of sonship becomes the spirit of prayer. The spirit who sighs and cries, Abba, is the same spirit who sighs in us with inexpressible prayer requests to God that God interprets perfectly. We, our deepest prayers, we can't say what they are. We can maybe think of the person we're praying for. We don't even know the depth of how to express what we want for them because what we want for them is what only God can do for them and only God can talk about stuff like that. So the spirit makes inexpressible groans in us. And that's not tongues, that goes way beyond tongues. We're talking about words that can't be expressed or mumbled or no incantations, they're sighs of the spirit. The spirit himself is breath, pneuma, the breath of God. Spirit of adoption, the spirit who makes us call out Abba is the same spirit who sighs in us Prayers to God that God interprets, hears, and answers, so great are the answers to those prayers is that most of them will not be answered while we still are housed in these bodies. It'd be too much so then in eight fourteen it's all spirit, and the whole point I'm making is that we will see first fruits again in the sense that we are now. The church, which is the body of Christ, which is the Israel of God. And we have what is known as the adoption, heathesia. But that is a privilege distinctly given to Israel. It's one of the gifts that God gives to Israel. The gifts and the calling of God are without being revoked. They are irrevocable. And he's talking not about your individual salvation. He's talking about Israel as a whole. The gifts of Israel include they receive the oracles of God, the covenants, the patriarchs, the law giving. They have a wonderful heritage, and they have the adoption. They are called sons of God. And not only that, but from them according to the flesh came Christ himself, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen but also the calling of god upon israel is without revocation he doesn't revoke the calling and the calling has to do with their glorious destiny so in romans 8:14 as many as are led that means governed and guided guided by the spirit of god are the sons of god israel is determined described by the spirit I will put my spirit in them and make them walk in accordance with my ordinances, which is to love one another and to love God. As many as are led, governed and guided by the Spirit of God are the sons of God Hioi Theu huyoy Theu, which is the same as saying they are the Israel of God in Galatians six sixteen. Galatians opens with a curse and closes with a blessing that makes it in a for certain genre of letter. I'm giving it away a little bit called a magical letter with curses and blessings. Paul steals the genre for himself. The blessing is upon the Israel of God, peace and mercy upon those who walk according to this rule, the rule of a faith that works by love even the Israel of God. The sons of God are the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16, compared with Hosea one ten. Now again, you would think that the ultimate sign that a person belongs to the God of Israel and is therefore of the Israel of God should be a spectacular sign. But Paul, both in Galatians and Romans, put forth, puts forth this very unspectacular sign. And it's spectacular just because it's so unspectacular. That such a person is simply caused to call God by the name Father. He denotes that name, Paul does, more intimately by the Aramaic word, Abba. Only a few words in the Aramaic are retained in the New Testament. Although that was the language that Jesus spoke almost always was Aramaic. And tetelestai that we have in the Greek was an Aramaic word that he spoke and tetelestai simply translates that Aramaic, which is closer to the Hebrew asah, the last word in Psalm 22, 31, which means it's already created, it's done, it's finished, it's done. What is? The making new of all things is done, done, done. God from the throne said, look, I'm making everything new, all things new all things new and it is done. What Jesus finished on the cross is a new creation of all things, a new renewal of all things. It's done. Eschatologically speaking, it has yet to be fanned out and manifested. Historically speaking, God doesn't leave anybody behind, not in his program, not even the dead. The best social program a government can come up with can't do anything for the dead. They don't know it yet, but they really can't do anything for anybody. Both terms, technon and huion. Refer to the same group of people. The one whom we call father. The spirit of the son calls Abba. Another word is Maranatha. That's another Aramaic phrase. Maranatha. Abba is the most intimate domestic way of addressing a parent the male parent Galatians four, six says that the spirit of the son capital S O N has been sent into our hearts, crying or even shouting Abba meaning father in a familiar vocative of address a vocative of address means you vocalize your address to someone. You call them by a certain name. Think of how gracious and inclusive Jesus is. He's so inclusive that he talks about Gentiles coming into the kingdom and the response of the churchgoers. Well, we've got to kill him. Luke 4.18 and following. Think how gracious and inclusive Jesus is. When he's asked by his disciples, teach us to pray. And he starts with these words, our father. Think how inclusive he is. Think how gracious. Think of how personal and inclusive he is when he speaks to Mary Magdalene. After his resurrection and on the way to his ultimate glorification. Something has happened. He's been raised from the dead. Something hasn't happened yet. A phase of glorification of his resurrection body, which will experience only when he ascends to the Father. Something we don't know too much about yet. But resurrected and on the way to ascend to his Father, he says, Mary, don't keep clinging to me. I haven't yet ascended. It doesn't mean you can't touch me, you can't hold on to me, you can't embrace me. It just means you better let go because I'm going up. But then he said this, go tell my brothers. He didn't say go tell my disciples. He said go tell my brothers. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Why? Because we got the same daddy. Go tell my brothers, go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my father and yours, yours, Mary, yours, my brothers. I'm going to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Think how personal, how inclusive. He's not ashamed in John 2017, coupled with Hebrews two ten and 11. He's not ashamed to call us brothers, siblings, brothers and sisters. And he's not ashamed to have each of us call his father, my father. My brothers, my father, your father, my God, your God. Look at verse 15 in this connection. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery again. Slavery again means once you were enslaved. You did not receive a spirit of slavery again, leading to fear. That means leading to slavish fear. You know what he's talking about here? Exodus, the slavery of the people of Israel in Egypt and their fear of Pharaoh and his reprisal if they refused to be his slaves. What had to happen there was a divine intervention. Yahweh says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, I don't think so. God says, you just made the wrong decision. You did not receive a spirit of slavery again, leading to slavish fear is how I'd translate it. kind of goes with 2 Timothy 1.7. You've received a spirit of power, of love, and of salvation-mindedness is what it says, sofrasune. But he says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery again, leading... To slavish fear. On the contrary, strong contrast here, you receive the spirit of adoption. Romans eight twenty-three also talks about the first fruits of the spirit, and the adoption that's spoken of there is going to be fully realized in our bodily resurrection. It's also important to note that in Romans nine four, Hiathasia, Adoption, sons by adoption, is the privilege irrevocably given to Israel. So here it is. Let me read it again. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery again leading the slavish fear. on the contrary, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out to God, the Father. Abba. The opposite of fear is the filial love for our daddy, our father. Gerhard Ebeling, E-B-E-L-I-N-G, in his exposition of Galatians, I'm already on four commentaries on Galatians. He wrote one called The Truth of the Gospel. When he was considering this subject of adoption, he wrote this. He said, the reason for adoption speaking in his case in Galatians 4, 5, and 6, is then stated God sent his son in 4, 4 of Galatians. Then he said the consequence of this sharing in sonship is that God sent the spirit of his son in 4, 6. So, huiothesia, adoption, is one of the irrevocable gifts that belongs to Israel. Again, Romans 9.4. Please connect that in your own study and thinking. It also belongs to all who are in Jesus Christ, God's son. Galatians 4.7 says, you, plural, are God's son. Singular. I'll let you deal with the implications of that. It means Christ comprises the new humanity already. Hiathasia. How about Hosea 11.1? God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel enslaved under Pharaoh was God's son. He called him out of Egypt. Matthew takes this and refers to Jesus as the one referred to because by a dream, Joseph and Mary were told to take the child down into Egypt because of Herod's hit squad. Herod was going to kill him. When Herod was dead, the angel appeared in a dream to Joseph and said, take the child back so it may be fulfilled. Hosea 11.1 1 in Matthew 2.15 Out of Egypt I called my son. Israel is the son he calls up out of Egypt and out of slavery. Jesus is the son he calls up out of Egypt and out of the threat of death by Herod. What's going on here is the equality of or the equation of Jesus with Israel. Jesus is the Israel of God. And everyone joined to Jesus is God's true Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. This is what Paul is also referring to. In Hosea, again, you have not received the spirit of slavery that you had in Egypt that led to fear that if you didn't fulfill that slavish obedience, Pharaoh would destroy you and your family. You didn't receive a spirit of fear or a spirit of slavery to fear again like you were under slavery to sin and death and the flesh, but the spirit of God by which freed from all those influences, you can say, Daddy, to God the Father, the ruler of the universe, who judges impartially and takes no bribes from anybody. If we only knew, if we only knew what God thinks of his little ones. If you knew what God thinks of his unborn ones, and now people want to kill them when they're born. And if you think this nation can continue, it's not because God is vengeful. It's because God loves those little ones and cannot let a nation continue. With all the stuff that people are outraged about, It's funny they're not so outraged about infanticide, killing children just like they did in Egypt, throwing them into the Nile River. What happened to Egypt? The same thing that will happen to any nation that does anything like that to the least of these. I could almost take on a prophetic mantle right now, but I won't because it's not my job. But I just did. Anyway, somebody gets all excited about what some guy did 35 years ago, but they don't make a mention of some guy saying, well, what we do is you take the baby and keep him comfortable until the parents decide whether they want to kill him or not. And they skip right over that. I saw that and I was so appalled. I haven't been able to get it out of my soul yet. And I don't think God wants it out of my soul because it's the very kind of outrage that it's better that a millstone be wrapped around the neck of such a perpetrator. Even if it's a nation and thrown into the deepest sea, every candidate will stump about how they're going to make everybody prosper and leave nobody behind. We're going to leave nobody behind, and everybody's going to get equal wages, and we're going to kill the firstborn. We're going to kill kids if parents are inconvenienced by them. You hypocrites. It makes me wonder what kind of power people want in their groups, whether it's a woman's group, they call themselves, when the power that they want is the right to kill children, just like Jezebel. Tell me about your woman's movement and describe it and I'll be sympathetic with you until you show me the roots of it, which just might be that. You say you just stepped in a hornet's nest. I didn't think so. I wasn't talking about hornets. So then. Social commentary isn't my gig. It's not my specialty. But when it comes to it, you can't shut up. When it comes to things like this, you can't shut up. All right. In closing, therefore, not intending to go two different directions I went in today, but that's the spirit for you. It's always my prayer, Father, I have, a, I have this message, I've edited it, I've prepared it, I've written it out, I've edited it four times, I've edited it up until 9.30 in the morning on Sunday, and I have it in my heart. Change it all together if you want, take it all away, just direct me by your Spirit. Abba. We are children of God. In Romans, technon, called children, and huioi, called sons of God, are both used. Romans 8.14, 8.19, 8.29, 9.26, 27. And they're distinguished only by the context in which they appear. In Jesus Christ, all of humanity will be made alive with Christ's own death-conquering life. That's the guarantee. Right now, you're privileged to have been born into that life and to be given that life. While we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together in his son. What privilege we have. We are the children of God by a supernatural birth effected by God through the spirit. God doesn't give birth to children and then decide whether they'll die or not on the table. He gives them birth so they will live. We live, not only with life, but with a life that's conquered death and keeps conquering it and isn't afraid of what the powers that be, sin, death, the flesh, and the powers listed in Romans 8, 35 and 38 and 39, none of which can separate us from the love of God. We don't fear Anything. The sons of God together constitute the Israel of God. And I love what Ebeling wrote. He wrote this Paul attaches absolute priority to the definitive removal of what separates Jews from Gentiles before God. Then Ebeling added this. I wish I'd have read this a few years ago when it was I was fighting for this. In Christ they are one with each other, Colon, the Israel of God. Galatians six sixteen he quotes Israel with the indwelling Shekinah glory. To them belongs the glory. That's the Shekinah indwelling glory of God with them. Always intended, that indwelling of the Shekinah glory with Israel was always intended to reveal Israel as a microcosm of the universal restoration of all humanity and all of creation. Israel with the indwelling Shekinah glory was always intended to be a microcosm of the universe and a prolepsis or an anticipation of a universal renewal brought about by God's action in the Messiah. God's action in the Messiah doesn't leave anyone behind. The present Israel of God, made up of Jews and Gentiles without distinction, is the anticipation oh, and a very imperfect one but an anticipation of a universally renewed humanity inhabiting a renewed universal creation with eternal life. Even the creation has eternal life which is why trees clap hands, mountains sing and the creation itself rejoices. So in closing part two, I have a two-part closing in case you haven't noticed. A spirit of slavery leading to fear once again alludes to the Exodus in which God delivered and liberated his people from slavery in Egypt and from the fear of Pharaoh's tyranny and reprisal. Pharaoh is representative of the suprahuman powers that threaten the elect today. Given different names in Romans 8:35, 38, and 39: famine, peril, danger, sword, war, all the rest of it. So significantly, and I can't emphasize this enough, in Hosea 11:1, God says, "When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son." That's what it means that we, God's sons, have not received the spirit of slavery, but the spirit of sonship, of huiathesia, of adoption, by which we shout Abba, by which we call God Father. Israel is he whom God calls my son. God is he whom Israel calls my father. Israel, whom God calls my son, is the Israel of God. But God calls Jesus my son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew three seventeen seventeen five. Jesus, the son of God, therefore, is the Israel of God, or the one who is the single inclusive representative of eschatological, not merely ethnic, Israel. Those who are moved by the Spirit to call God Abba are the sons of God. You say, that never really happened. I never really ecstatically shouted out Abba. Well, you can if you want. And mean it with all your heart. Or when you go and pray for your meal today, you begin with Father. You might even do it unconsciously. That's the Spirit of the Son in you. That's the unsurpassable sign that you are the first fruits of a universal harvest, the Israel of God. Those who are moved by the spirit to call God, Abba are the sons of God. They are corporately the Israel of God in Jesus. Now, since all will be made alive in Christ Then the Israel of God, also known as the body of Christ, is the anticipation, the living hope of a humanity in all of its times being given the life that conquered death. The life that we were given in regeneration is a life that's already conquered death and that is no longer under obligation to the flesh, which is analogous to slavery in Egypt and to the Pharaoh. Who symbolizes those suprahuman powers? You'll notice that his powers, his armed divisions, his armament divisions were drowned in the Red Sea. As our sin was drowned in the Red Sea of the blood of Christ, who as a lamb without spot redeemed us from the worthless behavior handed down to us from Adam through our forefathers. For if you call the one who judges impartially all the earth and all human beings, if you call him father, you should carry on in this temporary exile on this earth with a reverential awe that you are his children. For you have been redeemed not with silver and gold, but by precious blood of a lamb without spot. Peter has the lamb at the heart of his revelation in 1 Peter one eighteen to 19. John has the lamb at the heart of his gospel, John one twenty nine, John 19. Revelation has the lamb 28 times at the heart of its apocalypse. Paul has the lamb at the heart of Romans, for God did not spare his son, but freely gave him over on behalf of us all. How shall he not, therefore, with him freely give us all things? Thank you, Father, that you're so much for us. And as we pray silently now, as I pray, this congregation prays silently, and in doing so, they call you Father. And Father, as they call you Father, I pray that your Spirit in them will assure them and testify with their innermost being that they are the children of God, as Romans eight sixteen says. This is the glorious and wonderful and fantastic, spectacular sign that we are your children, that we call you Father. This unspectacular sign, so familial, so domestic, so intimate, so personal and loving, is really spectacular in our eyes, Father. In fact, it's marvelous in our eyes. The stone that the builders rejected has been made the head of the corner of the temple that will one day fan out throughout the whole of the universe in all of its times. That you've given us the privilege to be a first fruits of this just astounds us, Father. Thank you.